So um, Joshua uh, chapter 10, probably one of the most miraculous chapters in all of the Bible. Um, uh, You know, a lot of people look at other specific circumstances. Jesus' resurrection certainly uh, is, you know, in those top tier uh, moments of miracle working. But here the Lord actually affects the entire solar system in uh, this setting. So it's it's really a remarkable thing that takes place. From that, <clears throat> the critics despise this passage, and they have uh, just a ton of junk to say about it. You've heard <clears throat> the old expression, if you can't beat them, join them. Um, we've had those inside Christianity who have jumped into the commentary on this, and they've done a fair amount to damage the credibility of this passage. So we're going to examine a number of things, but I just really want you to have it in your mind before we begin that it is a critically important passage of Scripture in every regard, uh, what the Lord has to say here. So Joshua chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass... When Adonai Zedek, which means Lord of Righteousness, King of Jerusalem, uh, that's the very first mention of Jerusalem in uh, the scripture. Whenever you find first mentions, they end up being very significant to the surrounding settings. We have Jebus prior to this, but this is the first actual use of the term Jerusalem, uh, you know, God's city of peace uh, mentioned here. Now, throughout the book of Joshua, but particularly in this passage, we have characters and circumstances presented to us that very much speak about New Testament things. They're foreshadowings of things that are to take to place. This Adonai Zedek, as I said, by definition, the, the name means Lord of righteousness. So I mentioned moments ago uh, Melchizedek, which is uh, in Genesis chapter 14, and, and there uh, the prince of righteousness or the prince of peace, uh, the king of Salem, as he is called there, and uh, he's a priest to God most high. So he's in obedience to God. He's worshiping God and he's leading others in the worship of God. So Melchizedek is very different than Adonai Zedek. So Adonai meaning Lord, as we said, Zedek meaning righteousness. This is a a picture, a a foreshadowing of the Antichrist, right? Because he's completely in rebellion to God. And he's set up his throne in the place that belongs to Jesus. That, That is his spot to rule from. This is where his authority will eventually rest. So a number of things as we move forward in this really show us this foreshadowing of the Antichrist in rebellion to God and then the conquering, right? Because we know the term Joshua, who, you know, the book is titled after him, and he's going to be the conquering leader of Israel who comes in and defeats Adonai Zedek. We say Jesus... But realistically, if you transliterate the name Yeshua uh, to English, you get 
Joshua. Okay, so so in an English sense, a true English sense, our Savior's name is Joshua. You, you got to take the trip through Greek into Latin and out into German and then back into English to, to get Jesus. Um, and, and we're all fine with that. Uh, but just understand that when the scripture renders Joshua, uh, that also bears reference to Jesus, uh, at least in shadow and type. So uh, Adonai Zedek, you know, uh, Lord of righteousness, we're going to talk about the fact that he set himself up in this position. And so, uh, you know, giving himself this title, putting himself in this position, really what you're looking at is self-righteousness. Okay. And, and we all know how pleasant that is, you know, when someone is filled with their own self-righteousness. You know, Christ can cleanse us. It's always uh, more accurate uh, to recognize that, you know, yes, we're righteous, but it's because of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, not because of how special we are as individuals. So a little bit of uh, background there, uh, reading forward, star rate at verse one again. Now it came to pass when Adonai, uh, Adonai Zedek, Lord of righteousness, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. Now let's just pause for a moment, right? Because Joshua didn't accomplish these victories, right? The Lord accomplished these victories. You can't even point at Ai and say Joshua accomplished these victories, right? Because the Lord clearly crushed the walls of Jericho. And then because of the sin within the camp, they in their arrogance say, oh, well, let's just go, you know, throttle Ai while we're at it. And they send a few thousand people over there and, and you know, 36 men die. And they're defeated and driven from the battlefield. Uh, so, so it's only once there's repentance and the sin is exposed and done away with. And, and then they listen, inquiring of the Lord. And he gives them a plan that they go and they have victory. But it's through the Lord's correction and through the Lord's plan and through the Lord's strength. So, you know, when the world looks on, they, they completely misinterpret our victories, and they completely misinterpret our defeats also. You know, they, they don't understand the working of the Lord behind. And honestly, it's practically impossible to try and help them understand. Okay, uh, this is something that I, I strongly encourage for people. Uh, come in, experience our Bible study, and walk away saying, thinking, feeling like I don't get any of this. What is this about? This doesn't make any sense to me. To which I say, well, you probably first need to become a Christian, um, you know, and, and then, you know, when you read these passages, when you pray, uh, you'll understand them very differently. You know, have you ever had the opportunity to read, not that you did it wrong or intentionally, read someone else's mail, you know, okay, read someone else's email, their text messages, and you you have no idea what is the context, what is going on here, what is this all about. I mean, you can completely misinterpret, you know, the the attitude, the tone. You know, you think they're angry, they're actually happy. You know, they think they're happy, they're actually angry. You got no idea what's going on inside this context. If you're the recipient, right, 
then it's an entirely different message. And you can explain to people, right? They, they see something, you know. Uh, my wife is reading some communication I've had with somebody, and she's like, what is their you know, issue? What is going on? Nothing's an issue. And then I explain the back, uh, like, let's go back, you know, 45, uh, you know, messages here and see where this begins. Oh, now that makes sense, right? Because it becomes her communication. If you surrender your life to Christ, pray to become a child of God, ask for his Holy Spirit to enter your heart, suddenly this letter becomes your letter. You start hearing from the Lord. You start understanding the things that are written here because they pertain to you. Jesus, I see all this. You see, you, you see one face. I see all the faces. Okay. <clears throat> so the smirks when we're dealing with, here's the thing. No, no, uh, no slight here. Just understand that when the devil's trying to distract you from the message, you might want to pay attention to how important the message is. Okay. You know, did I say you were the devil? I didn't mean to. I, it's not what I meant at all. Not in any way. Uh, I distract myself and I'm doing it to you now. So here we go. Um, <clears throat> there's an important message here for us uh, re regarding victory and how it's accomplished. Uh, they've had a couple of victories, right? But the first one was, you know, we could almost say easy, right? There was no skill involved. There was hardly any preparation involved. What did they have to do? Worship, right? Walk around the city and worship the Lord. That's what they had to do. And God crushed the defenses and the walls, except for Rahab's house, right? And then they went in and mopped up. In the process, AI defeated at first, but listen closely to the Lord, obey him, and then the Lord gives victory again. All right? Remember, uh, those of us that have walked with the Lord for quite a while, how in those first days, you know, for many of us, it seemed really easy. It just like, wow, it was so glorious. You just sort of floated into church and stayed there forever and then floated back home and floated through your job and just Jesus was everywhere. It was just so beautiful. So the Red Sea just ripped out of the way, and you walked across on dry land. It was amazing. And it was sometime later when you sort of were picking your teeth up off the ground over and over again from the defeats that you were asking yourself, like, where did it go wrong? Why, why, is, it, why is life such a pile of junk? What, what, is, what is happening to me? And then the Lord in that continuation, says, okay, now we're going to actually experience what battle's really like. And we often read this and we think about the Lord's great longevity in the process, but really you got to think about the strength and endurance it takes to follow the Lord through this process. There's a massive, long battle that's about to be ahead of them. So in this whole thing, as they enter into what they're experiencing you know, Adonai Zedek has no idea what he's talking about when he's talking about the victories of Ai and Jericho in this uh, setting. So he had done to Ai and its king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were amongst them. Now, um, right, looking on from the outside, oh, you know, the... Gibeonites are now allies of Israel. Israel isn't feeling especially warm and fuzzy 
about the relationship with Gibeon right now, are they? Right? Because they've gained that relationship through deception. And so in this whole process, you know, we're getting the worldly view from Adonai Zedek and how he perceives these things. Adonai Zedek and the others, they, uh, they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. That's the first we've heard of that, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty, literally trained, skilled fighters, warriors. So this concept uh, you know, of what we've heard, think about this. That puts Gibeon in a different light, doesn't it? You know, you sort of get the impression from chapter 9, like Gibeon is looking at Joshua and the nation of Israel and thinking they're so superior, we better go over there and make an alliance with them, when really they're the elite of the nations. They're very large, they're very powerful, they're very skilled, and they recognize we're already defeated. This, this God just moves the entire Jordan River out of the way. This guy, this God just you know, crushes the walls of Jericho. This God has incredible tactics of warfare against AI. We've got no chance. They're, they're actually more accurately respecting God and submitting to God than any of these other nations. So they're a great city, great fighters. Verse 3, therefore, Adonai Zedek, again, that idea of false or self-righteousness, king of Jerusalem. So we're going to go through the com the compilation of names here, and we get a picture uh, from who these people are. So you've got the false or self-righteousness, king of Jerusalem, and then he sent to Hoham. So these are just, you know, uh, babies' names you can keep for later in case you want to, uh, you know, include them in your own family lineage. Um, uh, the, uh, you're going to be able to look up these names and find slightly different understandings. So as I give you these things, understand that what I'm looking at is the root derivative of these names in most of the cases. So Adonai Zedek, uh, Lord of Righteousness, Self-Righteousness, False Righteousness. Hoham is to crush or destroy is what his name means. King of uh, Hebron, and that's the alliance. So think about so far you've got uh, false righteousness combined with crushing, making an alliance is, is what's being portrayed to us here. Pyram, which is uh, interesting, uh, his uh, name means wild donkey and uh, doesn't mean much to us in our setting, but the people of the Middle East, even to this day, admire these animals. And now, it's an interesting admiration, right? Because the region is, if you've been there, it's so desolate. It's, the thought that an animal could live out there without any human uh, provision and, and care, and these wild donkeys do. They, they thrive in the area. And they, they seemingly are untouched, unharmed by the severity of the environment. So, so the people of the region admire them, but they also disdain them because they will just wander in and eat your garden, right? And then leave. And you can't subdue them. You, you cannot be like, okay, we're going to have a roundup. 
We're going to go all get all the wild donkeys, and we're just we're going to make a team of donkeys out of them. They 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 will not submit. They are it's complete. They are a wild animal. It it isn't like domesticated horses or cattle that have escaped that domestication and formed a herd, made you know procreated and become large numbers. This is a wild animal that it is impossible to tame. Uh, so, so the admiration is just sort of, wow, aren't they resilient? Man, I hope they don't you know, end up in my backyard, is, is really the idea. So again, you, you string these things together of you know, self-righteousness uh, to crushing, making an alliance with this wild donkey. Uh, King of Jarmuth, uh, that has the idea, the, the root word is shining, but it's the idea of self-exaltation, you know, so you know, always, always pleasant to be somebody that's, you know, filled with self-righteousness, crushing others, making alliances with wild, you know, animals and, uh, you know, is just completely self-exalted. That's, you know, always a pleasant person, you know, group of people. To, to be around when you consider this whole picture that's being painted. Japhon, again, uh, the show-off is literally the best thought there. King of Lachish, which is impregnable. You, you know, they had this idea about their city, their fortress, like no one could conquer us. Anyone comes against us, they're just going to be met with the impossibility of our strength. So this, this whole thing uh, is, uh, you know, an interesting sort of, expression. Deber uh, joins them, uh, the, the root word there, uh, oracle, uh, one who, you know, speaks forth of spiritual things. King of Eglon, this is interesting, uh, de by definition means a, a fat calf jumping in circles. Okay, so, so you know, if you combine those two things of, you know, the spiritually overinflated, you know, jumping around telling everybody they, they know spiritual things. You know, maybe you've experienced people like that, and they're just so pleasant to be around. So you know, consider what might be being said here. So this uh, area, this region that all of these kings and leaders uh, rule over is the backbone, uh, right down the spine of the mountainous region, the heartland of Israel. And they, they recognize if we fall, then that's it for the nation. You know, they, from, from that point forward, the only thing that's going to be experienced is, <coughs> you know, sporadic conflicts. The, the bulk of resistance is right here. As far as real capabilities, um, you know, militaristically, nationally, politically, to oppose Israel and its invasion... This is the group that's going to do it. Uh, it, it would have been uh, much better uh, if the Gibeonites had been with them. <laughs> you know, clearly none, none of their efforts would have, uh, you know, been substantial enough to resist God. But as far as nation against nation, uh, they're recognizing, look, substantial cities have already fallen. And if, if we're going to actually band together and have a conquest where there, we stand any chance of retaining our independence from Israel, this is the moment, this is what we need to do. So uh, coming up uh, to me and uh, come up to me and help me uh, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has 
made peace with Joshua, Joshua and the children of Israel. So a spiritual look at this, as I described, the center of Israel, uh, the heart of Israel. Um, if you want to look at things just spiritually, separate from this, you know, the center of your person, the center of who you are, right? Jesus is saying uh, to the disciples, uh, you know, uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you may need, food, clothing, and shelter, will be added unto you. Uh, it's often been said the heart of the problem is the, the problem of the heart, okay? If you don't take care of this, the central, most important part of your person and your relationship with the Lord, everything else falls. Everything else becomes subject to what you have given into. Uh, these kings understand this is the center of Israel. We need to maintain our authoritative position here and, and conquer Israel, or Israel's going to conquer us and they're going to rule over us, which is actually better for everyone involved in the problem. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 tells us keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Um, consider that uh, when uh, I was, I can re literally remember when IBM be began. So I've, I've become that old man. How did that happen? You know, uh, so IBM, uh, we had friends of our family uh, had, a, had a big uh, factory near where we lived. And um, one of the guys, the chief programmer there, they had developed a, uh, a phrase that's become very common uh, in our day, uh, garbage in, garbage out, was, was the phrase. That what you put in for programming, that's, that's what you're going to you know. So when, when you're having problems with the machine, don't scream at the machine. <laughs> you know, look at what you've put into it as coming out. What you've put into your life, that's what's going to come out of your life. And, and you know, you're going to have struggles. You're going to have problems. You're going to have difficulties, but if if you heart automatically turns to the Lord, if you are trusting the Lord through the process, you know, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. If Christ is central to your thought process, if the Lord, if the Word of God, if if fellowship and worship are the things that are going to carry you through, uh, the burden becomes quite light in the process. If if you're going to try to reason and calculate and counsel yourself through, uh, then it's going to be a great deal more difficult. So here in verse 5, therefore the king, the kings, plural, of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the kings of Hebron, the kings of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. So Again, they're focusing their attack on Israel by attacking Gibeon, who has made this alliance uh, with uh, Israel. So uh, as you make certain uh, victories and conquests in your relationship with the Lord, and you're thinking, wow, you know, this is such a liberating thing to have been freed from whatever your issue was, and you're sort of celebrating in what the Lord has done in your life and the conquests that you've experienced, uh, know that the attack is coming immediately behind that. Uh, and uh, if you don't think it's coming, 
then uh, the attack is much more alarming. Okay, you just you can't understand why. Why are all these bad things happening? Why seemingly disconnected things? You know, well, why is my job situation changed? Why is my car breaking down? Why is my marriage so tense? Why? You know, because you made commitments to the Lord. You've surrendered yourself to Christ. I say this to every uh, young person that you know comes to me and says, "We want to get married." I say, well, I'm with you, man, but do you understand what you're signing up for? Right? Because whatever you've been doing up to this point has not been inside the category of spiritual warfare. Not in this relationship. Right? You cross that threshold into marriage. And this is the thing. It's interesting because a number of people from the homosexual community and otherwise who have embraced the concept of marriage have said you know and i don't endorse that at all uh, but they have said you know it's, it's startling how difficult the relationship becomes after marriage well you gotta understand the institution of marriage belongs to god the devil doesn't care if you're fornicating the devil doesn't care what you're doing with everything else if you if you say indirectly directly in some perverted warped sense we're going to honor god's institution that he created known as marriage you just cross the line and you've chosen to pit yourself against the enemy of marriage and he's going to do everything he can to destroy it and i guess that all sounds kind of weird in regard to homosexual relationships but i'm just trying to establish that marriage belongs to god he created it, right? And if you cross that threshold, you know, brace yourself. I always say at weddings that I perform, you know, we stand here and often say, you know, these people are taking vows and we're here to witness it. And you get the sense sometimes that, you know, you're here to hold them accountable. Well, any of us that have been married for any amount of time, no, I don't need anybody to hold me accountable. My spouse will do a wonderful job at that. <clears throat> What I need is people to support me in the vow that I've taken. I need people who have made that vow themselves, who are willing to join me in the struggle, who are going to be people that pray with me and pray for me. I need people to take their sword out daily on my behalf and see victory in my marriage, victory in my life, as I need to do in those marriages that I've been involved with. It's an interesting thing how once you enter into agreements with the Lord, your enemy will come and find you. I don't know. I've said many times to people who newly committed themselves to the Lord that, you know, there are a few things I want them to watch out for. One is the job will interfere with the relationship with the Lord. The second one is romance will interfere with the relationship with the Lord. And thirdly are the false teachers who will interfere with the relationship with the Lord. And I, I encourage them to be on their guard against particularly the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. And, and they almost like roll their eyes like, really? You know, I've heard about those guys, but I've never even met one. They're not going to be a problem to me. And I say, you watch, you watch. And it's, a, it's amazing how many of them come back the very next service like, you won't believe what happened. I got home and there was a Mormon waiting for me. You know? 
Yeah, exactly. You made a commitment to the Lord, and your enemy recognized that, and he launched his attack at you. If you know it's coming, it's a little bit easier to handle. You make commitments to the Lord, know that they're actually plotting and scheming against you. They're going to carry out their attack. So they gather together, and they encamp before Gibeon made war against it. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. Listen, there's got to be a part of Joshua. There's got to be a part of believers that when the scenario is like this, you're regretting your mistake. Right? Joshua was not supposed to make alliances with anyone that lived within the country. He was either supposed to destroy them or drive them out of the land. And he's tricked into this and he makes the alliance uh, with the Gibeonites here. And now what's the first thing that happens? Right? Now you've got to come defend the alliance that you made with us. The temptation would almost be like, well, we'll just sit back here and let you guys get wiped out. You know, that, that'll sort of take care of our problem in uh, what we've done. Uh, you read in the Old Testament and the question is raised, who can dwell in your presence? And you get a list of people, but particularly it says there, those that swear to their own hurt and do not change. You make a commitment and then the problems come. The answer isn't, oh, I shouldn't have made this commitment. The answer is, I've made this commitment, and now I need to live up to this commitment. And that's what Joshua does. And that's the greater portion of the lesson here, you guys. The greater portion of the lesson. So you got to come up to us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal. And if you're thinking like, yeah, they went up, right, 4,000 feet. They're 2,000 feet below sea level, and they're going to hike to 2,000 feet above sea level. That is no small feat as they begin. So they went up and ascended 4,000 feet from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Right? It's interesting how this is... A prophetic past tense. It's, it's already done. I've already conquered them. They're already yours. You don't have a thing to worry about here. It's nice when you get that type of reassurance in your heart and in your mind. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came up upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So now, now listen to me in this, okay? What I really want you to grab a hold of as we go through, we just got a few more verses to go, is the concept of the ill-fated commitment, right? They weren't supposed to make the agreement, but they made the agreement. Now they're going to live with that commitment, and they're going to fight for all their worth in this setting. So they go up immediately. Again, 4,000 feet of ascent, right? You know, uh, what's uh, Katahdin? Uh, 5,000 276 feet, right? So, you know, twice, you know, or what, 
one and two thirds times up Katahdin. Uh, you know, any of you that hike that know, four thousand feet of ascent is massive, right? Twelve hour hike, you guys. This is twelve hours one way, uphill the whole way. When you get to the top of a four thousand foot ascent that has taken you twelve hours, your first thought is like, "Yeah, now I'm ready to go into battle." <laughs> right? Now I'm ready to go to bed. You know, where's the Ben Gay? I was just hoping to, you know, shut down for, I don't know, whatever. It's just, it's not the idea of going into this. So we often read of this long day, and we only focus on the miraculous portion of the long day. Right? How about the times where God says, come with me, we'll go into battle, and you charge off heroically, like, yeah, let's do it. And then the battle just keeps going on. And on and on. I mean, it's a wonderful thing that this miracle takes place, but you've got to also look at these people have to be relying upon the Lord every single second of this process, right? The tank was empty when, you know what I'm saying? Four hours into the hike, six hours, eight hours, surely eight hours into the hike, everybody's like, good, we'll set up camp right here, we'll start tomorrow. No, going to finish the hike and then going to go into war. And then that war is going to be extended. It's remarkable what's taking place here. So the Lord routed. I like the uh, King James Version's discomfited. You know, I can just see like the three stooges running around, smashing into each other and just all of that silliness of slapstick humor. The Lord discomfited them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon. That's an 800-foot descent. These guys are now running away from Israel, falling 800 feet. Uh, uh, Horon means uh, caverns or wrath, or if you want to combine those two, caverns of wrath. And um, we're not going to get to it today but the next section uh, talks about how the kings hid themselves in the caverns and they have to get them out of the caverns in order for them to experience uh, justice. So here uh, they're fleeing in descent away from them and struck them down as far as Azekah. Uh, that term means to be fenced in. Uh, Mechabah is to be herded, the idea of channeled and corralled so you can hear and their names, they've given these places exactly what the Lord was doing in these settings. Now, as we move forward, also a greater theme that you got to pay attention to is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Okay, because either one of these things you could get warped on. You could get just focusing on how God deals with these enemies and thinking, yeah, that's that's how I'll handle things in life. I'll just sit back on my laurels and, and, you know, the laurel was the crown that they wore once they'd had victory. So we've conquered Jericho and Ai, and now we'll just, we'll let the Lord do the work. We'll just let him carry on. Or the other aspect of it is, oh, even though God isn't in this, we need to do everything. Man's responsibility. Both things work in combination. God's sovereignty is going to conquer these people but they have the responsibility to pursue and fulfill the work and the will of the Lord in this setting. So God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. 
It happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as uh, Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Uh, st- with the sword. From this point, a whole bunch of the critics want to talk about, well, actually what happened was this massive vol- volcanic eruption. And so these stones that are falling from the sky, like that's any less miraculous? You know what I'm saying? There's no historic evidence of that happening, uh, right? But even if that is happening, you don't recognize it. None of the nation of Israel is killed in this, right? Just strategically falling. So so like the volcano's picking targets? I, I, don't, I mean, was, what are you saying? You know what I'm saying? It's just it, the critics always want to try, try to throw some natural explanation in here. And in the end, the, if you just squint for a second, they're making it more miraculous, Right? God, God is killing the enemies of Israel here. Uh, some translations of the hailstones, um, every other place that that term is used in the Old Testament speaks just specifically of rocks. So rocks falling from the sky. Possible that it was rocks. Probable that it was hailstones. That's how the scholars translated it. So we'll just uh, leave that alone and you can argue with yourself over that later. <clears throat> then Joshua spoke to the Lord on that day when the uh, when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel. So the Lord speaks to Joshua, but then Joshua speaks in the sight of Israel. Now listen, what he's about to say is prophetically miraculous. And the boldness it takes to make this proclamation is remarkable. Okay, if the Lord said this to you or I, we would probably shrink away and find some way to leave town uh, rather than publicly declare what Joshua is going to say right here in verse 12 as he continues. Sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Agilon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Now, we're going to get into some specifics in the last couple of minutes that I have here about the details of this, but I just want to plunge forward and wrap up what's going on. Uh, It says, is this not written in the book of Jasher? Now, you don't have Jasher in your Bible. And for some of you that, you know, study a little more extensively, you may be thinking, right, in the Apocrypha. It's not even in the Apocrypha. Uh, Jasher is a separate book from history, and what we have today that is referred to as the book of Jasher is probably not the book of Jasher that is spoken of here, okay? Probably what we have today is a book that was rendered from that book. It's mentioned, this, this battle, this circumstance is mentioned, but it's in like a poetic psalm-like writing. It's not some detailed explanation of how these events unfolded. Uh, Where is the book of Jasher? No one knows. Uh, It would be great to have it. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. Don't know. The Lord didn't include it for us. So it's safe to assume that this is all we needed to know about it. It's recorded in the book of Jasher. We'll, we'll, We'll take that class together when we're in the presence of the Lord. So anyway, here 
we get this reference uh, to the book of Jasher. The sun stood still in the midst of heaven, did not hasten. And there, that's a key word in this to go down for about a whole day. Now, how does that define out? Right? A whole day. Is this, are we talking about an extension by eight hours? An extension by 16 hours? Are we talking about from, from this point forward, the day was extended an additional 24 hours? What, what do we say? We don't really know other than it was extended for a lengthy period of time. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. And there has not been, uh, there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. And it's the idea of Joshua calling out for help as he did publicly before everyone uh, from the Lord. Literally, I need you to affect the entire entire solar system is what he's asking for in that moment and the lord responds in this so <clears throat> the sun and the moon interestingly enough are the two major gods of the canaanite and the amorite armies right so presently their gods are not serving them their gods are serving their enemies right these guys want it to go black. They want night to come. They want to escape the battlefield and know we're going to keep the lights on for as long as this battle takes. It's really interesting. Keep that in mind, right? When you're just like, when is this battle going to end, Lord? Whenever the Lord says the battle's over, that's how long it's going to be. Isn't that a pleasant thought? The nice thing is he's going to give us the strength to go through the whole process. The great biblical scholar, Gleason Leonard Archer, wrote in detail about the wording in this verse. His book, The Encyclopedia of Biblical Difficulties, Archer explains the Bible is not saying that the sun and moon suddenly stopped in midair, rather that the whole process slowed to near stop and then re-accelerated back to its original speed. That's literally how the language is laid out, that God slowed down. I mean, if you just jam on the brakes, right, you, your Coke flies to the front of the car, you know what I'm saying? The ocean would do the same thing. You can't just stop the world in its mode. We would have all fallen down, or they would have all fallen down, you know what I'm saying? You know, thousands of miles away. You know, so so it, it slows way down and then it speeds back up. There's a, an interesting uh, account from the ancient world where uh, there, there are several accounts in regard to this, which I'll discuss in just a moment, um, where uh, Mars passes, it's on an elliptical orbit, not round, and it passes so close to the Earth that it's 50 times larger than the moon, okay? And, and that, that was like people of the ancient world documented that. Uh, you might want to purchase, uh, um, I was going to say Ivan Panin, uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky's books, uh, Worlds in Upheaval and Worlds in Collision, where he takes the ancient world's documentation of some of these things and uh, researches them and puts them on paper. So, uh you know, people mocked that account, these ancient people saying that they had seen this planet at such close proximity. Uh, the world was startled almost 
1,300 years later when a telescope was finally invented where we could see the moons that they had already drawn and depicted and named fear and panic. Okay, so uh, the thought is that perhaps this astrological event coincided with this, and if this planet came within close proximity uh, to our planet, it would have grabbed us gravitationally and pulled us off orbit. So that would have, rather than stopping our rotation, even on our axis or orbically, it would have pulled us with it so the sun would have seemingly stayed in the same place as we traveled until that great gravitational field was broken. Further thought on this whole process is there was a time where the world's calendar was measured by the moon in 360-day cycles without any leap year. We're now on a 365 and a quarter day uh, rotation around the sun, and that's why we moved to tracking it according to the sun rather than the moon, because the moon doesn't coincide with our orbit around the sun, as it seemed to have in the past. So you can do a bunch of research on that on your own. It's really quite fascinating. If you look this up and you come across Harold Hill's name, and this great account of how NASA studied this and they discovered all these orbital things and it's a top secret thing and they don't let anybody know about that has all been debunked and it's not true. Okay, It, it, it makes for wonderful sermons and fantastic illustrations, but it's just not true. So anyway, there's lots of people that do that sort of thing. And that's what I mean about those inside Christianity who defame Christianity with good intentions. Right? Paul actually admonishes us to not think along those lines where I will advance the kingdom with my lies. Okay, that's, that's a very dangerous prospect. Ancient Greek historian Herodotus spoke about this happening in Egyptian history. He gleaned from the Egyptians' writings and wrote about it. Babylonian history, Greek history each have record of this long day. So this isn't just a biblical account. There's a Chinese emperor from 1400 BC that wrote about this same long day, all on the same day in the calendar, by the way. Uh, American Indians, South Sea Islanders, Aztecs, and Incas all recorded a long night happening on the same day in history. So this isn't something that's just recorded in the Bible. And then everybody can go, oh, those crazy Christians, and dismiss it. This, this is a historical event that took place, and people hate it because it confirms what the Scripture. The critics then want to howl about the fact that, oh, it says the sun stood still, and uh, we all know it was the earth, right? And they want to make it sound like, oh, see, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. Well, you know, you can still right now get on your phone and look up what time did the sun rise today? And what time is the sun going to set today? Well, are they stupid because the sun doesn't rise or set? The earth rotates. So, you know what I'm saying? It's phraseology is all that it is. Okay? It's just how we refer to what we're experiencing. So the sun standing still here 
is this remarkable thing. It says, then to close, then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. I just want to dwell one last time on the endurance it takes from these people to follow through this battle with the Lord. Now, now overlay the spiritual application again, you guys. I set it out as preface when we began, right? In the early days of your faith, it seemed like things were easy. God provided miraculously. You were working in such a way with him that you were just constantly rejoicing about, you know, at least to some degree, it seemed easy. And then struggles entered in and the endurance was required. God will make things stand still for you, but you're going to have to endure also. Right? These people got up. They marched in the middle of the night, 12 hours through the darkness, to arrive on the battlefield as day broke. And as the day progressed, Joshua understood that the task that was in front of them was going to be much longer than the daylight hours. And he asks the Lord to make provision, and God moves the entire solar system in order to accommodate this man's work. But then the endurance has to continue. Until the work and the battle and the warfare of the Lord are completed. I've talked to many people who, you know, say things along these lines specifically. I quit drugs and that seems so easy in comparison to lust or anger or some other besetting thing. It's been years I've been engaged in this battle. My, my encouragement to you is do not give up. Abide. Remain in Christ. Fight the fight. Drag on. Continue on. It feels like the sun has just stopped in the sky. Exactly. Exactly. Stay with the Lord. Stay in the fight, right? What does Jesus say? John 15, abide in me. Be fruitful in him. Be fruitful for him. Let the Lord's will and work be accomplished. Amen? Amen. So that's the time we have for this week. We'll pick up at verse 16 next week, unless you want to stay for an additional four hours. The sun will stay right. Anyway, let's, let's, let's pray. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your love. We don't deserve it. We do not deserve it. And yet, you extend yourself to us. So remarkable. Lord, help us to cooperate with that. Accomplish what you want to in our hearts, our minds, our lives. Lord, help us to be submissive to you. Lord, we, we so need you. So need your work, your will, your victory in our lives. We want to see those things accomplished. Give us your strength for endurance. Help us that we might just carry on. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.